0: This episode is brought to you by Berkland Associates. Okay, so your company is growing fast. Stuff's moving 1,000 miles a minute. It's exciting, but all that speed without the right systems in place can hurt you at scale. Enter Berkland Associates. Fractional CFOs, bookkeepers, tax and people ops experts, Berkland helps you build the right systems that can keep up with your growth and can handle all the finance, accounting, tax, and hiring services that consumer startups need to scale. From ensuring your fundamentals are sound to making sure you're prepared for the next funding round, Berkland Associates gets consumer startups. For more information, head to berklandassociates.com, and you can check out their toolkits for startups as well. Link is in the show notes. Today's episode is also brought to you by Skillful. Skillful runs online immersive programs that helps launch and accelerate careers in business roles in tech. Join one of Skillful's upcoming cohorts to learn what you need to know and from who you need to know. Skillful recently released their core sprint for January. Their core sprint is great for business generalists, anyone looking to get into biz ops and build their SQL and problem solving skills. They also have two additional sprints that will be dropping soon. Their strategic finance sprint for finance professionals looking to learn how to level up their experience for a strategic finance role and their product strategy sprint for professionals who currently work cross-functionally with a product team. Or if you want to understand how product strategy and business strategy intersect, no prior product experience is required. So early bird applications for their core sprint, that's the one geared towards business generalists, are now open. Use the exclusive code, Early Bird 2021, if you apply before December 1st. Head to joinskillful.com, also it's located in the show notes, before December 1st for access to an exclusive early bird pricing. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. During the holidays, we're releasing highlights from 2021 every day during Hanukkah and during the 12 days of Christmas. Today's episode is a highlight of my conversation with Sarah LaFleur, who is the founder of M.M. LaFleur. M.M. LaFleur creates luxury apparel and accessories with the same attention to detail as high-end fashion houses. I love this conversation about how Sarah built her fashion brand. And without further ado, here she is to tell her story. When was your first inklings that when you thought about women's formal wear, did you have a background in fashion? Did you, what were like the current options and what what kind of made you realize that, hey, maybe there's actually an opportunity here to start a company?
1: I think I knew it because I was a consumer. And so my first kind of real job out of school was um, working as management consultant and, I thought it was really, really hard to shop for good clothing. It's not that there were there weren't options, but the options that existed were really uninspiring. Um, I felt like I was spending a lot of a lot of money on clothes I didn't really particularly like, but it was what I had to buy because it was appropriate. And the fit was really bad. The fabric was kind of low quality. The tailoring was horrible. So I would often go to my tailor in Chinatown to have things taken in or let out. And my mom worked in high-end fashion. Um, And so I think through her, you know, she would bring home these pieces and and show them to me. I kind of got to see firsthand what really beautiful tailoring looked like. Or I remember actually, you know, I had this one skirt that I had gotten at uh, some sort of sample sale. And... It just fit me so much better than anything else I owned. And I felt great when I wore that skirt. And I, I'm sure everyone can relate to this feeling of like, when you put on your favorite jacket or your favorite dress or what have you, and you look yourself in the mirror and you're like, damn, I look good. Damn, I feel like I can do anything today. And, you know, I think clothing is often thought of as this kind of maybe trivial aspect of your Performance or who you are as a person, but I actually think clothing is magic, and there is there is a lot of energy that it can give you. Also, can change the way I think other people perceive you. So I think that's that was really the inkling the first the first uh, time I had that
0: idea. No, that's great. I mean, it reminds me of a conversation too, just uh, from that consumer lens. Um, when I talked to uh, Andy Dunn, the founder of Bonobos, and he was saying how when he was starting Bonobos, that it was in, in some vein, but looking at men's pants and how men's pants didn't actually fit really correctly. And there was maybe a misalignment, a certain figure that uh, th- that pants didn't cover. And once you actually felt it, that, and once you actually tried them on, that Oh my gosh, this is so much better than the alternatives out there. And you can certainly feel it and just feel so much better. So that's it's very, very cool that you were able to uh that kind of starting to source and starting to maybe just experiment with what eventually became MM LaFleur. Um, that's that's just a really, really cool. So what was like the next steps after you realize, okay, obviously you you're very serious, you want to start a business, you you're gonna be launching MM LaFleur. What were How were you able to source and what was kind of that process like?
1: I think what I didn't really understand at the time was how hard it was going to be to break in with into the supply chain. And what I mean by that is, you know, fashion, I think, is a very turbulent industry. So designers come and go all the time, you know, new, new brands launch, and they're also fairly quick to go belly up. And so... I would say generally fabric mills and factories are pretty skeptical of, of newcomers. And so I thought, you know, if we went to a factory and we paid money and said, will you please make this for us, then people would. And what I had to learn the hard way was that you had to beg them <laughs> to make things for you You had to beg them. To take your money. And really, I think if it were just me, you know, they were like, what? You worked in management consulting? What the hell does that have to do with fashion? I think it was really like Miyako's credibility that opened a lot of doors for us. And so, you know, we made our first line of dresses in the garment district in New York City. I'll never forget our first factory was on 37th, between 7th and 8th Avenue. And then one of the first mills that worked with us is a mill that we still partner with um, based out of Italy. They make the most gorgeous wool. And that was because, you know, this this guy, uh, Steve, really took a chance on us. But it was hard in the beginning just actually, you know, getting people to sell you stuff. I did I did not expect that to be such a challenge.
0: I appreciate you sharing how you approached customer research before you actually um, made the initial pieces. Even kind of before that, what was maybe your marketing strategy even to get the samples out in the hands of potential customers?
1: We did not have a marketing strategy. We also didn't have money. But what I knew was that there were other women like me out there who wanted this as an option. And so really the first thing I did was I, I tapped kind of my own circle and I said, okay, all of my fellow colleagues at Bain or you know, I had friends who were either going to law school or um, were, you know had, I think were like on their way to becoming lawyers. And I, you know, just said, you know, I'm doing a trunk show. Would you, would you be interested in coming? And the first two trunk shows that we hosted were legitimately, I think, you know, 90% of them who showed up were people who were our friends, but slowly, but surely we started to see people we had never met. And we didn't, they, it was funny because, you know, I remember there were, there were a group of women who came from uh, like a a bank. And I said, how did you hear about us? And she was like, oh, you know, I don't really know, but I think someone was talking to someone else who was wearing one of your dresses, like in the cafeteria. And, you know, they told me that you were going to have a trunk show. So here we are. And it was kind of crazy to see, you know, I think by the, the last trunk show that we hosted, um, that year, there was, there was a line of people out the door just, just trying to get in. And we were like, where did these people come from? And so there was a huge uh, word of mouth element to it in the beginning. We, it was totally unexpected because we really had done zero advertising uh, aside from just telling our close friends that this is what we were doing.
0: That's, first of all, amazing. And secondly, that's a great sign, too, um, that you kind of have that word of mouth, um, that people are so excited for these samples and what you're presenting, that uh, they're telling all their friends, and, and then their friends are coming out, and then and then what have you. And that's that's super, I, I can't even imagine just having like a line out, even when, even kind of pre-launch, you haven't even launched anything. That must have been really, really just an amazing feeling.
1: Yeah, it was. It was, I think, I think I, we had spent about a year just on the product, and I think we were very determined to make something different and better than our competitors out there. And I think this felt like the final test, you know, was the past year in vain or have we actually made something different? And I think just the, the excitement around the people who came really showed us that, okay, maybe, maybe we've done something something special here. We should keep going.
0: I love that. I love that. And so after the final of your presentation with uh, uh, showing samples and, and kind of getting people very excited, what was the initial launch strategy?
1: Uh, I think we said, okay, these, these trunk shows went well. Clearly people like our products. I think at that point we had kind of figured out, you know, the, the skeleton of the supply chain. And so we said, okay, I think we should go and launch the site now. And it's funny you mentioned Andy because I think um, Bonobo, Scorby Parker, you know, they were both huge inspirations for us. Um, and they, they, I, you know, I have told both of the founders of, of these two companies, this, and they always laugh, but I was like, you guys made it look so easy from the outside. It was like you launched a site and you put on product and it went gangbusters. And they're like, you don't even know, <laughs> you don't even know the full story. Um, but, I think, you know, just looking from the outside, I was like, wow, like it, it feels like that. It feels like it's supposed to be that easy. And so we launched the website, um, on January 1st, 2013. I'll never forget. It was like launched 3am right after we rang in the new year. I think the first day of sales we had like maybe a dozen, but then like the next day it dropped to like six and then the next day it dropped to three. And then like pretty soon it was like crickets you know there was there was zero momentum on the ecom side i think nuri and i were kind of shocked we were like you know what is going on here like what what happened um and i think at that point you know we were still so naive uh because because we had had good sales at these trunk shows um and when i say naive i mean we were naive about a lot of things but we were very naive about selling Uh, Selling things on e commerce. And I think just to put it into context, like we, our dresses at that point cost, I think around $295, so almost $300. And uh, this was like e com 2.0, it was still like pretty nascent stages. And now people are comfortable buying, you know, $2,000 Pelotons online. It's like that's just the norm now. But I think back then, like buying a dress that cost that much. There was a lot of hesitancy and reluctance about it. You know, uh, you know, I have, I can't even touch it. I can't see it. I can't feel the fabric. Um, how can I commit to something that costs three hundred dollars? And and I think it took us a while to really figure that out as 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 a point of friction in our product that we were offering and the channel we were offering it through.
0: What were throughout like the next year or so uh, in twenty thirteen. How were you able to make MM LeFleur online not as much as a risk to consumers, you know, kind of bringing down those periods of, uh, of friction? And so consumers would, would be a lot more comfortable buying from you.
1: It really was the launch of Bento, um, which as a company we don't even offer anymore, but it was essentially a, for lack of a better word, a box service where customers would come online, fill out a brief survey. Tell us a little bit about themselves. And then, based on that, we were creating a box for them saying, We think this would look great on you. And when we launched that um, in 2014, our revenue tripled overnight. Um, It was kind of crazy to see that, you know, the only thing that was changing about our company at that point. So the products were the same, the prices were the same, the branding was exactly the same. The only thing that had changed was we were now telling customers, instead of going through the site and ordering for yourself, let us do the picking for you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll make the box for you. And when we put this message front and center, our business took off uh, in a way that it it never could the past 18 months. And that was really the game-changing moment for our business Uh, and even that, you know, truth be told, it came about because we were sitting under a mountain of inventory. We didn't know how to move these, these dresses, you know, talk about like, at that point we had gone past the sample phase. So we were actually holding, um, a lot of our products, uh, as inventory and we didn't know how to move them. So we, we reached out to our very small pool of existing customers and said, like, if we send you a box of clothes, like, would you try them on? And you can keep whatever you like, return whatever you don't like, but like, would you be willing to try and we got such an uh, enormous response from that. And when I say enormous, you know, better than any other email marketing email we had sent up until that point. So we decided to try that with new customers, you know, customers whose email addresses we had, but who had never purchased us from uh, purchased from us yet. And a surprising number of customers said, yeah, sure, I'd be willing to give it a try. Like I've been meaning to shop from you. I just didn't know, you know, which ones to try. And I think that was really the big unlock for us, for our business, it is really taking away some of that decision paralysis that that really existed at that time when we were such a nascent brand and when buying expensive products online was still relatively novel and that really allowed us to scale our company from you know i think it was like 1 million to 8 million to 30 million to 60 million basically year over year i mean it was it was kind of phenomenal growth that happened in that in that period
0: That's amazing. It's such a fascinating to just like a consumer mindset in that part of the friction, it seems, was consumers actually having to make decisions on what to actually buy um, on your site. Whereas you're taking that friction away. You're saying, hey, fill out the survey and then we'll send you product. But then also kind of ease the, the consumer in saying you can return anything you don't like, no worries, that quadrupled your growth. That's amazing. That's really cool. Really cool. I also wanted to touch on to um, the the fundraising piece. When did you decide to first fundraise, and why did you choose uh, going fundraising as opposed to bootstrapping your business?
1: I think I have ambitions for making this a really great big business. You know, I think um, I was told in the early days, Oh, you know, good for you. You started a a real niche business for yourself, or this is a a niche category. And I, I kind of said to my, you know, I mean, what about, what about professional women is a niche category? Cause you know, there are 15 million working women spending roughly a hundred billion dollars in clothing uh, every year, uh, a good portion of which is worn to work. Uh, And so it felt like people weren't really understanding the full opportunity And I I think I I very much believed that, you know, working working women, working professional women weren't a niche category and that there was an opportunity to dress them in clothes that they loved, that they, they liked so much better than the competition. Could I have bootstrapped it? No. I, I definitely, yes, I, I'm sure I could have bootstrapped it and it, it would have remained, I would hope a, a good business, but probably a, a very small one. Um, and I think a lot of the brand awareness that we were able to build and the just amazing people that I've gotten to hire was a result of the money I was able to raise.
0: That's really um, great to know because the word uh, lifestyle business gets thrown around when it comes to consumer businesses often.
1: Which is so funny because like it is so hard running a a consumer business, no matter what category you're in. So I do remember it's so funny. I actually had a female investor say to me like, oh, like, sounds like you have a really great lifestyle business on your hands. And I was like, what is she talking about? You know, but um, I, I mean, I actually do have friends who are running consumer businesses and they have not raised money. And... It's just as hard, if not harder. So I, yes, thank you for acknowledging that. I, I really think it's like a, a like kind of a, a condescending thing that that is often used in conjunction with like describing small businesses or businesses that that women start. Um, and so, thank you for pointing that out.
0: No, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I don't know. I also just don't love the term lifestyle businesses, if I'm going to be honest, because you can grow massive businesses, and those businesses are lifestyles you know, in, in in some ways, right?
1: Totally. That's so true. That's such a good point.
0: I mean, obviously I use the term because I don't know what else to use because um, people know what it means. But yeah, I never really loved that. But what was it like? I know you you raised like a friends and family round and then you went on to raise your Series A, which congratulations. What was the differences Raising from friends and family versus maybe raising from institutional investors?
1: I would say so. We have done friends and family. We've done series A, series B. We've done a series B1, you know, which uh, could have been our series C, but we called it a series B1. I will say it has gotten progressively easier, which I can't even believe I'm saying that because no fundraise is easy. But if I think about the first $400,000 that I raised from friends and family, they they weren't even friends and family. I mean, I think I'll I'll be really clear. Like I think my, so I put in $30,000 of my own money and my parents let me $30,000 of their money. So that was the friends and family portion. And then then it was just contacting friends of friends of friends of friends. And the first $400,000 I raised is the hardest amount of money I've ever raised. And it doesn't even kind of, compare to, I think, the slog, uh, you know, raising the Series B does not compare to the slog of, of raising for that round. I think it was also, you know, I was raising in 2012, 2013, VC investing. I mean, it's it was still quite nascent. And this idea of investing in female entrepreneurs or in female consumer products, femtech was also very nascent. So I think, you know, we say that, I, I think the stat goes like 2% of VC funding goes to, um, female led businesses today, but I can't, I mean, I think it must, it must have had, uh, must've been less than that, um, back then. And it was pretty painful. I, I got a lot of feedback that was around, you know, well, it, it's a niche business. Um, but I think the most honest piece of feedback, which I am still like very grateful for is, one of my investors who actually invested later in a personal capacity he said you know so sorry sarah we're just four guys sitting around a room trying to get a gut instinct on your product and and we can't because we don't we don't wear what you sell and um i think that was that was like actually just so refreshing to hear after what had been a really grueling several months of freezing, trying to figure out what is it that I'm doing wrong. And maybe thinking that was like the first time where I was like, huh, like maybe it's not me. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was so trying. And I think, um, the institutional money that came afterwards, um, I would say it was like really a reflection of, of, of the business, Uh, doing well. And I think the numbers were there. And so I took, I raised my Series A much later than I think most startups would raise their Series A. Uh, But as a result, I also got to hold on to a a bigger stake in my company. I would say, you know, I I got to chart potentially a a, a slightly different path from consumer businesses that would have raised their Series A earlier.
0: It's amazing. What's tragic about that is the overwhelming amount of investors are men, right? And so if then... If investors then only invest in what they could know, then you're going to have such a harder time in order to invest. If you are a um, are a company whose customer is a woman, right? So I think that's also really really tough. To that, why it's incredibly difficult for women entrepreneurs that are that are trying to serve that is targeting a woman customer. But I I really appreciate you 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 sharing your experiences there. What's one book that inspired you personally, and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: This is like a, a quite academic answer, but I think it it's maybe like it kind of ties back to why I started MM, which is um. It's this book called The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir. She is also known, I think, as Jean-Paul Sartre's lover, but uh, she was a philosopher and a writer in her own right. And so I actually, I, I read this book in college and um, basically what what she kind of questions is like, why do women do anything? Uh, why do women wear makeup, you know, put on heels, wear dresses? You know, is it essentially, is it all in service for the other sex. And I think she made me kind of fundamentally question everything that women do and how much of it is kind of, uh, performative and in service of someone else rather than, than yourself. And, um, uh, it, it kind of then like mm-hmm. spurred this, I would say angsty, you know, a teenage college moment for me where I like stopped wearing all makeup and started wearing kind of billowy clothes and, um, experimented, I think a little bit, uh, with, with my femininity or a uh, lack thereof. And, um, you know, it, it's funny cause now I have, I have gone into the business of, of clothing and, um, you know, what, what I kind of ultimately walked away, uh, from that that kind of period of of this like tr- this experiment that I was doing uh, for myself was that I actually didn't feel great about myself, um, kind of rolling out of bed and you know dressing sloppily and, and all of that. And I you know it was kind of one of those moments where I realized, wow, I, I so much of what I do, yes, I'm sure. Deep down, there is some sort of performative aspect to it. But so much of, of what I do uh, when I put on makeup or when I fix my hair or when I when I put on clothes, I'm doing it for myself. And so I would say that was like a, a personally pretty transformational book. But I guess you could say professionally, too. I never really kind of made that connection until now, until you asked that question. But um, it was a uh, I, I, I had some angsty moments in college. <laughs> um. So, so that, that I would say is, is, uh, something that I think about a lot.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders?
1: Um, I would say it takes longer than you think. And, um, I sometimes have, you know, we, we have, we sometimes have interns work, uh, at MM and we've had a number of MBA interns and it, 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 when I asked them, okay, you know, what do you think you want to do next? And they say, well, I think I'm going to work on my own startup like over the summer. And, um, if it doesn't have traction, then I'm going to start applying for some jobs in the fall. And I'm like, but that's, that's like three months. Like you're never going to know if your startup has traction in three months, you know, try three years. And I think, Often, you know, people who start companies, they set these very strict timelines for themselves. And it would be wonderful if everything moved so quickly. But I think um, what people don't realize often, I think when they leave corporate America or whatever job they had is like, that job is up and running because it's been around for a while and things move faster. But when you're trying to go from nothing to something, like everything's just going to move slower. Everything's going to take twice as long. And so I would say give yourself time. Um, and what I would also say is get a side hustle. That's, that's actually probably my number one advice. I was tutoring maybe the first three years of starting MM. Um, I didn't take a salary, but I made enough money through my tutoring to basically pay my rent and, you know, pay, pay for food and, and kind of basic needs. And that just took the pressure off. Like I didn't have this artificial timeline because I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to run out of my savings in six months. So I can't, you know, if something doesn't happen in six months, then I'm going to, you know, whatever it is, go apply for, for another job. Um, I think just having a side hustle. Uh, and ideally health insurance. Um, Starbucks offers great health insurance. You know, that will give you kind of the breathing room you need to give your your idea a fair shot. So that, that is always what I tell founders.
0: Sarah, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, thanks so much, Mike. This is wonderful. Um, and congratulations. And I'm so glad you're doing something like this because let me just tell you, in 2011, when I was thinking of starting my startup, I wish I had had this. So thank you.
0: So kind, so kind. Thank you, thank you. Well, well, I really appreciate you coming on. This has been a lot of fun. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Sarah. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at mikegelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.